What is up, Hoopers, Analytics, Bad Guys, Bucket Getters, Boosters, Blue Bloods, and New Bloods? On today's episode, we are talking Gonzaga basketball, looking at the Zags, their statistical anomalies, as well as the road ahead. We're also going to be talking about the belt now that it's home in Rupp Arena with Kentucky, as well as looking at the vibe guys for this week. Hello, basketball world. Welcome to New Bloods, the podcast of all podcasts, talking college hoops. I'm Tuck Clary. I write for Slipper Soul Fits and Busting Brackets. And joining me, he's now on the East Coast. He's a sleepy zaddy. It is Austin King. What up, boys? That was the most defeated what up I've ever I, seen. I am so tired, so <laughs> don't hold me to any of the takes that I'm about to give this evening. We're ready for the delusion. <laughs> it's gonna happen joining me also is from arizona the chef the guy who says oshai agbaji is not quite Corey kispert josh linky hiya fellas <laughs> and lastly the only thing he hates more than offense is new york pizza it is kyle sessions yo miss me with those dollar slices boys <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. Yeah. Uh, uh, for for those that want to know more, uh, Kyle Sessions believes that New York pizza is incredibly overrated, uh, potentially mm. much like uh, some teams in the top 25. Okay. So Gonzaga played two games this week after only playing one the week before. Uh, pretty soundly took care of business against two of the lower teams in the standings of the WCC, Loyola Marymount and Portland. Did we learn anything from Gonzaga beating up on these uh, lower-level teams? We we learned that the Zags can, in fact, shoot three-pointers. That's right. Uh, on Saturday night, Gonzaga broke their home record for most three-pointers made in a game. They made 18. Yeah, we, I mean, we, we learned nothing, right? I mean, let's be real. We knew that they could shoot threes, the like, narrative that was going on and... You know, September, October, November, and even parts of December. I feel like after that Texas Tech game, that's when things really changed. And it was like pretty clear that this team could win games when they needed to shoot threes. And yeah, that's over now. Um, but yeah, I mean, beating Portland and uh, Tuck's Lions of Loyola Marymount really tells you absolutely nothing about yeah. this Gonzaga team at all. I learned a lot about um, Loyola Marymount. I learned that uh, nobody on Loyola Marymount knows really what their guards are up to. There was a lot of confusion in looking back at Stan Johnson. Uh, Eli Scott uh, said, what the F, probably f at least 10 times in the game, uh, both to the sidelines and to the referees, uh, because he experienced Chet Holmgren's seven foot five wingspan. I learned that Loyola Marymount is better than Sleepy Time T. That game was so boring. I yeah, like I think that was really the was. first game I genuinely did not enjoy watching. Tuck, I'm sorry you had to be there. Yeah. All the fans around me, the really the only thing they cared about talking about was uh uh number thirty-four, Le Pepe's beautiful, beautiful locks, and whether or not they were beautiful locks, or as uh my mother said, he doesn't look like a basketball player. <laughs> <laughs> that was also the discourse on Twitter.com. 
Yo, can we talk? A, I mean, like I posted a grainy, terrible video of it, but having La Pepe six foot six do the tip against seven foot two Chet Holmgren may have been the funniest thing I've ever seen. It's like Isaiah Thomas ties up Taco Fall or something. <laughs> <laughs> like it just looked like, oh, I wonder how this is gonna go. The Australian mullet really is the most remarkable thing about the LMU Lions. Yeah, I uh, don't think we learned a whole lot about the Zags. However, it was brought to my attention on the flight home. I had the great privilege of sitting with the Portland Pilots. And he brought to my attention that the Zags seem to clamp down whoever the best scorer is on the opposing team for the most part. So I wanted to check that out. And that seems relatively true. Obviously, those two losses against Duke and Alabama, Paolo Bencaro and Jane Shackleford did exa- everything that they wanted to do and more. Um, but also, we have six games in Gonzaga's schedule so, so far where the Zags significantly held uh, the leading score of the opposing team, um, not just in points, but also in field goal percentage. And I wanted to look at field goal percentage considering that Gonzaga plays at such a fast pace that there's really no way to hinder the point total if they're, you know, shooting three times as many shots as they normally do. So uh, Dixie State's leading scorer, Hunter Schofield, dropped five points when he averages 14. Uh, There's some ghastly ones like uh, Bryson Williams for Texas Tech only scored five points and shot 20%. He's a 54% shooter on average. Um, that's a that's a pretty remarkable one too, considering Bryson has had really an, a great great last few weeks for Tech. And then, especially in the last two games, I mean, look what they did to Eli Scott and Chris Austin. Eli's a sixteen point average, fifty two percent from the field. He shot twenty seven percent and scored seven points. Chet Holmgren completely took him out of that game. Chris Austin is a forty two percent shooter, averages fourteen points. He scored eight and 27 points when he when Portland was forced to play at a faster pace. It just seems the narrative that Gonzaga uh, hasn't figured out the defense is, is kind of unfair considering that when uh, the game plan is to sh- shut out whoever they need to shut out, they, they seem to be doing a good job of it. Is there anybody in conference that has shot like better um, than yeah. their average? Uh, Barcello shot a little bit above his average, but still he only scored two more points on his average. And most of those points came in the second half when the game was out of reach. Uh, Jamare Bouye shot below his average from the field, but was kind of saved by some three point attempts. So he scored 25, which is averages 18. So largely nobody's, nobody's actually gone off against Gonzaga in conference play as we've pretty much seen. I I would say the only real examples all year of players going off would be Timmy Allen for Texas. But in in some ways, Timmy was forced to take a bigger role in that game due to, you know, Marcus Carr and, and some of the, you know, Trey Williams, some of the other guys just not really having a good game. And then in the case of like Paolo Benchero, he, you know, he, he played very well in the first half of that game, but then he kind of disappeared in the second half. Um, really, the the only guy that's truly gone off is Jaden Shackelford. Mm-hmm. And really, that entire Alabama team played mm-hmm. well above their weight during that game. We can talk about that They'll Alabama on Jalen Cohn though. Jalen Cohn, yeah, Jalen Cohn in Arizona. Jalen Cohn, he shot better from three, but he pretty much shot his average, which is pretty yeah. impressive. Uh, he went three for eleven from two. So, well, yeah, it, it wasn't. It wasn't exactly like he could get to the rim like he can no. in most J- of his no. other games either. 
Jalen Cone is doing his best Cam Shelton impersonation for yeah. when Cam was there last I, year. What what's going on with Cam Shelton? Like he seemed completely Bro. and utterly lost for LMU. And I had no I just had no clue what was I, going on with it that was, offense. The, I felt so bad. I've been feeling horrible for Cam all season. He was he's been like a thirty percent thirty six percent three point shooter on in his career and he's down to twenty percent. I haven't seen what he's been since the Gonzaga game. But legitimately Gonzaga was begging him to shoot every single time he turned a corner the zags hedged instead of hedging the zags just completely collapsed towards the bucket and said please shoot a midi please shoot a three the one three he really made was off balance at the end of a shot clock prayer but where in that portland game gonzaga picked up the point guard at half court because they knew that they didn't have the speed or dribble skills to really do anything against the against them they were saying, Cam, please, I beg you, don't pass the ball. Please shoot the rock. Shooting 22% from three on only 32 attempts on the season. That's pretty bad. I feel like he just doesn't fit LMU's system at all. He's not built for their, their offense. And, you know, it's it's not really it's not really fair to him to judge him on this when when the system is just not not set up for him. Really, LMU's best hope was always going to be Eli Scott. And I mean, he's just not, you know, not had the year that he had last year, to be fair. I watched a, uh, like a video breakdown a little bit of Chet's defense after the game. And it didn't include any of the Eli Scott footage or any of their matchups down low from that game. But a lot of what they talked about in that video was essentially how Chet is able to pivot off of uh, the length that he has to get around guys who beat him and kind of play from behind them which a lot of other bigs aren't able to do so even though he's smaller or slight you know um you couldn't handle dan dickow talking about how small he was um but he still plays with like that intensity from from on the side of these guys or even behind these guys yeah there was a there's a bunch of points in the game where eli thought that he had chet beat and then chet uh ricocheted his shot a little bit or deterred his shot and he immediately looked at the rest kind of expecting a foul call because he said there's no way he could have gotten that reach on me without actually touching me because i beat him but yeah chet completely outmaneuvered him the entire game he's like dr awk with the uh extendo arms out there mm-hmm. and what he's able to do is he's able to recover so quickly because he has good enough hips that he can pivot quick enough once he gets beat and then recover with his length and not foul and that's what makes him like such a special defender on the perimeter yeah uh so by now i feel like most zach fans have heard this stat but i want to share it one more time uh chet after that lmu game according to stats by stats Chet is the first player in twenty five in the last twenty five years to average fourteen points or more per game, three or more blocks per game, while shooting over sixty percent and shooting forty percent on threes, which by itself is wild that he's able to do it. But then you break it down further, and there has not been a Division One player if you were to combine their best mark from each season to try and tally together or compile the ability to reach all of those averages, no player's ever done that throughout their career. So that's remarkable. That's but he's absurd. going third, right? Yeah. The conversation of who is going to be the number one overall pick. Before the season started, uh, when it was announced that Chet was going to Gonzaga, Chet was a sexy, too early draft, draft stock, big board guy. 
Then when the season started, Duke compiles some wins. Duke beats Gonzaga. It becomes a Paulo Bancaro watch where it's tank for Paulo. Then Auburn starts coming on to the national scene and it becomes a Jabari Smith conversation. Who's going to tank for Jabari? I wanted to take a look at uh, the three guys' averages. So look at offensive rating, which is an estimate of points scored for teams or points produced for players per 100 possessions. You want a high uh, total on offense and a low total on defense. The offensive rating for Jabari Smith is 115.6. Defensive rating of 88, which is really, really good. Paul Bancaro has an average of 115 offensive rating, 91.1. That's really good. That's clearly a top five lottery pick. You go to Chet Holmgren. Chet Holmgren has an offensive rating of 129.9 and a defensive rating of 80.1. (laughs) It's absurd how much like impact he has on the game. His offense, which... Everyone, you know, if you asked any single evaluator, they'd be like, oh, Jabari and uh, Paolo are more developed offensive players, and yet Chet's the more impactful offensive player. Um, If you were to ask a lot of people, they might say Chet has the higher ceiling defensively, but maybe they would take Jabari right now as a defender um, because of his athleticism. Well, Chet's clearly the more impactful defender, at least through these metrics, and if you really pay attention. I I think it's Chet. So Chet's come onto the scene quite a bit in a larger role ever since that Texas Tech game, I would say. And uh, a lot of folks, when we talk about Chet's numbers, want to say, well, look who he's doing it against. And Chet, since the Texas Tech game, has an effective field goal percentage, which is absolutely mind-boggling absurd, of 72.8%. His average for the season, 72%. He's been doing it the entire year, just in less opportunities. I was poking around, you know, Ken Palm's player comps for Chet just to see like similar seasons and what maybe he would look like in terms of translating to an NBA player. Obviously, there's the Evan Mobley comps. Everybody has been talking about that. He's got the similar frame, uh, similar defense. Um, But looking at some of the other guys, I mean, Christian Wood, um, Mo Bamba, John Isaac, all those uh, players translated into really really good nba bigs um john isaac's probably one of the best uh power forward defenders right now um outside of the injury trouble that he's had and teams just aren't gonna overlook this guy and and chet has seven inches on jonathan isaac like that's the absurd part um if you want to (laughs) talk if you want to talk about um chet's wingspan is seven inches i should say uh if you want to talk about you know the entire entirety of his game uh all these all these top three picks are all wing forward types you know guys that are supposed to be able to battle down low and distribute the ball chet has a 25 percent defensive rebounding percentage just the highest of the three of them he's a bet he's the best rebounder of the three of them uh per 100 possessions he's averaging 4.1 assists uh per 100 um jabari is averaging 3.9 per 100 uh Paulo is averaging five so Paulo has a ball in his hands more though uh well, more he's the facilitator of that offense alongside yeah. Wendell Moore Chet is not that Paulo has a usage rate of 28 percent Jabari has a usage rate of 26 percent and Chet has a usage rate of 21 percent he's 
10% less uh, involved in the offense as Paulo is. I think, I think also you, what we really need to take a look at and what, what really like translates over to the NBA today's NBA is the three point percentage. And if you, if you look right now at offensively, you know, all this talk about Jabari is the most developed, whatever offensively of the group. I mean, Chet is shooting 45.6% from three. Jabari is at what, like just over 40%? Granted, Jabari has taken like 50 more threes than Chet has. So, you know, there's there's definitely some volume there. But um, Paolo's the least developed of the three from beyond the arc. He's at like, what, 32%-ish on the season? So, you know, I, I just – I think another thing too about Chet's three-point uh, shooting ability is he is best in the transition game which is very much an NBA uh, thing, you know, like he, he's going to, when he gets to the next level, his ability to, to get out there and transition and move and find his open looks is going to be a huge deal for the next, for the next level. And I, I think, you know, we, we can talk all we want about, you know, Jabari's maybe got, you know, the better build or, or whatever. Chet is, is definitely growing his frame out. If you look at Chet from two years ago versus Chet now, he has he has added muscle to his frame. Um, you know, I, I think he still needs more time to do that, but he's also incredibly quick. You know, he's deceivingly quick. If you watch him off the dribble, he he makes guards look silly all the time. Yeah, and and you know that that translates extremely well to the next level. Um, you know, I don't know. I, I just think I, I know I'm not an NBA scout. But to me, Chet Holmgren is the best prospect in this draft. Yeah, and let's let's talk about the like skinny frame and like what that actually means for the NBA and what that means for the college game because obviously we're a college basketball podcast. Like Chet Holmgren right now shoots fifty percent of his shots at the rim. He makes him at a rate of eighty four percent. He is <laughs> the best finisher inside in the country, and this is not like a. Chet just gets a ton of lobs and he's just dunking at the rim. No, he's not. This he's isn't DeAndre great. Jordan numbers, bro. Yeah, exactly. That's just like not how he's playing. This is not like Walker Kessler, great player, but that is not Chet's offensive game, which is just getting little easy lob threats from your guards. It's not that at all. Um, it's completely different. Uh, yeah, maybe he gets back down from time to time, but like... How many NBA players are going and working out of the post? It doesn't happen because it's not an efficient like way to play basketball anymore, well, and, especially in the NBA. And, like, and extrapolating further from that, you, you said he's about 85% at the rim, right? Mm -hmm. Paulo and Jabari are 20% lower. 20% yeah. <laughs> lower. Yeah. And they're definitely uh, who, who not shooting 50% of their shots at the rim either. That's Who has the more developed shot. offensive game? I don't want to hear Jabari or Paolo any further. It is obscene to continue this nonsense. Like Chet, Chet is he has a developed offensive game. Period. We're putting that to bed. It's over. <laughs> this is it. The new narrative is Chet's the number one pick. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it's propaganda season, boys. And I, I mean, going back to what you said, Austin. Like nobody's gonna draft Chet and ask him to put his back to the basket. That is not what they're going to use him for. Like, <laughs> no. they're gonna run him as a as a stretch four or even possibly a three, and he's gonna eat all of these teams alive in the NBA. Like, there, I don't even know that there's a lot of teams that would even see him as a true five. Like, that's not the type of like play. He's that not playing. He's, play, he's not playing the five in 
Gonzaga right now. Right. Exactly. And like everybody wanted to talk about how Evan Mobley was going to take years to develop um, and that he basically wasn't going to have the body to be a five right now. And that's why you take Kate Cunningham. Well, guess what? They put him next to Jarrett Allen. And for a time, they were playing Laurie Markinen. They were playing Mobley and Allen together, and it was working. Like, if you can have a mobile athletic big that can shoot, you can play them at multiple different positions, and it gives you so much lineup flexibility. And, you know, with Jabari, I think you have flexibility. With Paolo, you don't. You've got to build everything through him. He is not a flexible player. Now, he probably has the more offensive firepower as, like, an individual creator, but... Is he really, like, better than Carmelo Anthony, who could never get it done? Like, is he really better than no, Carmelo? not even Oh, no, he's not. No way. He's not. So, to Car- me... Carmelo like, at this same age was so much further so much advanced better. than Paolo. Like, it's yeah, not even close. This is not... And that's not, like, dissing Paolo Bancaro, who's a great I'll, I'll player. Give, I'll give Paolo the, the advantage on body at this age. Like, he's built Maybe. like a freaking tank, but... Well, I mean, yeah, but Carmel Carmelo's never had the body. Well, Carmelo didn't sweat seven pounds a game. That's <laughs> true. Like you, you got to look at the health issue here. Like pa- Paolo obviously is having problems with electrolyte imbalance. So yeah. you know, I mean, I, I think he's gonna be skinnier I, than Chet by the end of the season because he sweats so much. If, if you, if you all don't mind for a moment, close your eyes and just imagine Chet Holmgren with a step back J in the half court game. It's, I mean, it's, think about it's it. Inconceivable. I'm sorry, that, my brain that, doesn't know. But that is coming. Thing. That is coming. You know that's coming. Like he in the next three years, he's going to have a step back. Jay, he's going to be unstoppable in the half court. He's already unstoppable in the, in the full court. So I mean, like, come on, like, there, there's no competition here. Like, let's let's stop. Let's just end it now. For those of you that aren't Zag fans and you're listening to this episode, we sound like homers. But what's really going on here is y'all aren't watching these. <laughs> games okay <laughs> so hey, don't don't call it a comeback okay maybe maybe kind of call it a comeback really it, let's break down for a moment the tale of andrew nemhard's two halves to the season so far if you consider that over the, the course of the last month he's been a perfect 17 for 17 from the line and before that, he was shooting 67%. He now has the highest free throw shooting percentage of his career, 86%. He has improved his assist-to-turnover ratio from below two for the first part of the year to over four at this point. He is now shooting 46.3% since the stretch of time when we played Duke and Merrimack. And... Before that, he was shooting 26.5%. He now has the highest three-point field goal percentage of his career at 37.3%. And he's also shooting the most volume at that, at that shot for, the, for his career as well. But all of this, if you, if you look even further, he's actually playing less minutes now than he has at any other point in his career. So he's doing, he's doing this in a shorter period of time. He's highly efficient. Really... I would say over the last, uh, you know, six weeks here, he's probably been the most efficient point guard in America. And I, I know that there's a lot of other people out there who are going to look at what I'm saying about Andrew Nimhart and they're going to be like, come on, stop talking him up. You've been doing it all season long. But at the, the Zags do not win a national title 
unless Andrew Nemhart is playing efficient basketball and he is playing efficient basketball right now, period. Yeah, without a doubt, Andrew Nemhard is the X factor for how far Gonzaga can go in the tournament. If you look at basically what we've seen uh, disrupts this Gonzaga offense, it is Andrew Nemhard being limited. And, you know, in the last 10 games or so, 12 games or so, he hasn't had a hiccup once. And, yeah. Uh, do I get to take credit as a cyber bully for demanding that Andrew Nemhard doesn't play 40 minutes a game? You, your opinion on that matter was taken into account, obviously, and it mattered. It, it really did. It mattered. So when, when, when the talk that Andrew Nemhard was limited because of the ball pressure that he faced from Alabama and Duke was occurring, it seemed like, you know, while he was going through that 20% three point slump, the conversation was, well, he's the guy with the lowest offensive rating on the team. Isn't that concerning? He had a, I think his offensive rating at the time was like 105, with a, which is still great for a point guard. His offensive rating, as mentioned before, 117. That's good enough to be in the top 250 in the country, which is more than good enough if you have Drew Timmy, Chet Holmgren, Julian Strother, all his offensive weapons for him to distribute to. Are we ready to say I that this team is as good as last year? I, I think that this team, I don't, I don't know if it's as good as last year on, on offense, but if you consider the level of defense across the board from, from Chet Holmgren's uh, rim protection uh, to Andrew Nemhard's perimeter defense, um, Nolan Hickman, Hunter Salas, like, you know, Anton Watson, who we haven't even talked about yet, but I mean, come on, like the guys come on strong as of late. Um, you know, this, this defense, while it may not look good in the rankings on Ken Palm right now, I mean, top 20, but you know, maybe it should be a little bit higher. Like this defense has the potential to take this team over that mountaintop. This team is not better than last year's team. It's just not. Last year's team went undefeated. It had a much higher offensive like efficiency and could just do it every single game. Like it was just a better team. Now this team, what it does have is depth. It has incredible versatility and it has a higher defensive ceiling. The guards need to be better defensively and cutting off um penetration the rotations need to be much better um if you look at ken palm the defensive metrics for last year's gonzaga team are much better than this year's not you know extremely high i mean the rim protection is much better because of chet um anton watson is a better defender this year than he was last year and has been phenomenal um but there's no jalen suggs on this team when it comes to defensive ability are we uh, sure about that i'm gonna push back a little bit about this at, the, at this point just because of what i've seen in the development of hunter salas i understand that hunter salas will not play not the minutes. yeah the, i know he won't play the there. minutes but if there was a ball stopper on this team that in the tournament you need to sub in for a stretch to begin a run Sure, but Hunter is never going to be your number one offensive option and be your like defensive stopper uh, that is going to get 30 minutes in a game. Like, has he even gotten more than 20 minutes in a game? No. Yeah. 
That's I guess that's my point is that Jalen Suggs is out there playing 35 plus minutes in a game and is an unbelievable defender causing havoc. And he's already right now in the NBA, maybe the best perimeter defender. Like he legitimately could be the best perimeter defender in the NBA right now. I love uh, that this is all legitimate and real, but every statistic that we're dropping is just us just saying Gonzaga is the greatest basketball player <laughs> that has ever existed. Um, yeah, I, I agree ultimately with that take. And uh, the Hunter Salas stopping thing is just something that I've been seeing lately in terms of potential. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't disagree. So so let's look let's look at these efficiency numbers on offense. They are adjusted efficiency last year, 126.4, 123.4 this year. Um, their tempo is a little bit slower still. They have 0.4 less effective field goals. They're a better rebounding team offensively. Um, so, so they're a better three point shooting team. They're mm-hmm. virtually the same two point shooting team. Uh, defensively, that you brought up, their rim protection went from six point nine, which was two hundred sixty second in the country, to thirteen point four, which is thirtieth in the country. So, that's just mm-hmm. to me the potential of growth to, for sure, be a team that can. I'm I'm not trying to 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 rain on the offensive parade that Austin likes to bring up every time because Austin is very much an offensive minded man. But I I don't see how you can say this team has less defense than last year. I, I, I just mean, I don't tells you that. Well, right now in January, but sure. But that that team was that that number you're looking at uh, in Ken Palm for last year was buoyed by an entire WCC season tournament and then some pretty weak competition at the beginning of the NCAA tournament. So, you know, that, that number will, will go down for this team as well. I I think what, what really is more indicative of, of what, what we should be thinking about here for this defense is, is more so just looking at it with our eyes instead of the statistics for a moment, because you have the rim protector you didn't have last year which has also opened up Drew Timmy to do more on defense than what he did last year. He's improved this year, I feel, defensively, because he's not left on an island by himself. Um, and, and also, he's not – when they do switch off onto Timmy, a lot of times, like, there, there's plenty of help around to, to keep Timmy from getting getting beat as badly as maybe he, he would have last year. I also think that this Gonzaga team is utilizing Anton Watson – in a much more efficient way on defense than we did last year overall. Um, and, and then from the perimeter perspective, Andrew Nemhard and Rajir Bolton are both lockdown defenders. So, you know, I, I think we have the tools defensively to not just be better than last year, but to be one of the best defensive teams in the nation in the NCAA tournament, you know, and, and part of the reason why I feel like we're not seeing that statistically is because We've been messing around with lineups. We've been messing around with with uh, young players and letting them kind of grow into these roles um, more than maybe we had to last year because Jalen Suggs was turnkey or, you know, because Andrew Nemhard was turnkey. You know, like this year we're seeing a little bit different kind of growth. And, and that's fine. Like I think that this is the time of the year when you want to grow, not in March. You know, th- this is the time of the year when we want to see these guys like, that that trajectory upwards so to speak it, it 
I don't disagree with anything you said, Josh. I just don't think this team is there yet as far as rotational de defense. It certainly has a higher ceiling than last year's team. Um, it, that's undoubtedly true. They're just not there. Like when you have guys like Kisper, who, you know, <laughs> give or take his defense, but his ability to know where he needs to be and to rotate was there. Same with Ayayi, like even Timmy. Anton was there. Jalen was great. Like there were, there were seven guys on the court that always knew like in the rotation, I'd say not on the court that knew where they needed to be every single time. Let and, me, let me, let me segue into a little bit deeper discussion on Anton Watson, because I'm going to use some of your words against you here Okay, perfect. when it comes to what you just said about Anton Watson. Beautiful. So friendship. you wrote, you wrote a piece on, on our website, zegaholic.net back in mid October titled weaponize Anton Watson. Um, you discussed how Watson had been used out of position for most of his sophomore campaign. Um, you said basically that using him more as a perimeter defender would maximize his defensive value and create a monster for the opposition. You believe that he was being forced out of position last year, or at least you said so back in October, that he was being forced out of position and playing a small ball five at times. Um, you know, like that, it may be true that Anton was still in a, a good defender last year, but he is much better and in, in better in position this year to maximize his tools uh, than, you know, and, and he's shown it. I mean, really like the last, what, 10 games or so, he's played probably the best basketball defensively of his career. And that's saying something considering that Anton Watson has always been a plus defender. Yeah, for sure. He's been much better this year. Like last year, he was stuck playing the small ball five. He wasn't really able to do anything. It was a lot of like drop coverages, a little bit of switching, but not much, not a ton of aggressive hedging. Like now he's able to utilize everything that he can do. His steal percentage is ridiculous. I think it's, I don't know if Tuck, you have it right off the top of your head, but I think he's like top 10 or 15 in the country in steal percentage and for a big that's like he's like top 25 but yeah he's yeah it's absurd really it, like that's not uh Four, normal 4.5 steal percentage uh which is 25th in the country yeah yeah so, so you know statistically speaking we're seeing roughly what we're seeing with our eyes here that anton is, is playing better defensively where he's being used better defensively mm -hmm. but then also on the offensive end which this part i feel like was a work in progress at the beginning of the year, kind of a transition from last year. We saw um, how indecisive he was with the ball. Um, he was prone to frustration and ultimately um, rush shots or turned it over on, on a pretty frequent basis last year at the beginning of this year. But um, what he, you, you felt what he needed to do was use his strength and athleticism to get to the bucket and create his own looks more often. What does that sound like to you? The last 10 games of Anton Watson, like he has been, significantly more confident more energetic more uh you know looking to create off the dribble um and and he's not out there just looking for threes or looking for something that he shouldn't be taking like he he is focused he is tuned in and he is playing with such an, a level of efficiency that that has him as as ranked one of the top four players in the nation according to evanmeyer.com so you know granted we could discuss the virtues of of Evan Maya or, or, you know, his numbers or, or whatever. But at the end of the day, like Anton Watson truly is turning the corner. He's becoming one of the better, more efficient uh, players in the country. And I think 
just as important ultimately to our end goal of winning a national title as Andrew Nemhart. I, I agree with you that he's a much better player in terms of how he's being used, but I don't think the numbers are much different. Like this is a guy who finished at the rim last, uh, last year, 71%. I mean, he was top 10 in two point percentage. So like we knew it was there. I think it was just like a bit of the, you know, the depth and also the way that we played the lineup. Like if Corey Kispert's playing the power forward, 80% of our lineup last year, then you're not going to see Anton because we had drew Timmy to play the center. So it's a bit different in terms of like the size of the lineups and stuff like that. But I mean, Anton, Anton's has a 7% higher possession percentage than uh, he did last year. And he even has a higher possession percentage than Chet Holmgren does. They're utilizing him far more. It feels like this season than they did last year. And I don't know. I, I, I just, uh, it's interesting to me that uh, Kempom wise, they're, they're considered to be worse defensively than they were last year when they have a lower effective field goal percentage than they did last year. They have, as I mentioned earlier, a higher block percentage. Um, they're doing far better in terms of ISO defense and uh, stopping assists per field goal made. Uh, it just seems like we could, come tournament time, see a, a, a legit top 10 defense from this team. You know what I just saw on Ken Palm? I'm looking at the uh, comparisons, and one of his comparisons is Jonathan Williams. I mean, that is like the level <laughs> that uh, Anton is playing at. That, like, imagine if we just had 2017 Jonathan Williams coming <laughs> off the bench. Like, that, that's basically what you have right now, which is pretty absurd. Does anyone think the difference in the statistics that we're comparing, because obviously we're doing pretty deep comparison between this year's team and last year's team. I mean, does any of that have to do with the fact that we just played a better schedule this year? And like some of those variations are going to be from the, the difference in the athletes that we played this year compared to last year. I know we played Iowa and Kansas, but that seems to be pretty much it outside of the WCC leading into it. And I know you guys were talking about how much better the record was. And, you know, we dropped some tough games this year. I just wonder maybe, we're seeing a better team with a higher ceiling and Josh is using the eye test, but we also don't have quite the testing that we have had this year leading into it. I don't, I don't know if it's necessarily better athletes across the board. I mean, we played, you know, Texas tech who, you know, they, they are all long. They're all athletic. We played Duke who has legitimately. Oh, what, yeah. Like that's what I'm three... saying. I'm saying this year we played better athletes, which is accounting oh. for a bit of the oh. difference in why the numbers might be, similar but when we're watching it it looks better because we're just playing better talent comparatively i don't know that's Maybe. just what i was thinking of in terms I'm, of i miss i totally misread what you were year. saying oh guys i can't believe we lost the national championship I can't <laughs> believe it. But, but i'm just let's... looking through all the green on ken palm and just like wow it was <laughs> the best time of my life and then just red at the end and i just want to die but the very things that we were missing last year with that team i think we have this mm -hmm. year and we are mm -hmm. ready to beat mm -hmm. a team like baylor was last year or yep. and, and let's be real is there a team like Baylor no. in this field. No, there's not. There's just I, not. So I want to wait until like the beginning of March to say that I, I, I agree right now. It doesn't look like there is, but it feels like right now there is a significant portion of the top 10 in the country that are playing their worst basketball that we've seen yeah. from them. 
You know who scares the shit out of me right now? It's Kentucky. I am. That team scares me. If Shaden Sharp comes and he's good and they figure it out like a little bit three point shooting wise, that team all of a sudden becomes. We're going to have a conversation about that team later in this episode. So we're, we're, we're looking at the rest of this team. Uh, we're, we're talking about statistical anomalies, somebody whose statistics that are down that we're surprised by perhaps, or Gonzaga fans are surprised by is, uh, that of, uh, national player of the year preseason nominee, Drew Timmy. Does, does this statistical information that he may not be, does it feel like he's not having as good of a season? Maybe, but do we think that's true? Well, I, I think it's a system thing too. Like Drew, Drew Timmy, what he's doing right now is really not that far off of the pace that he was at last year. Um, and, and if you look at like you know some of the national player of the year rankings, like on on the analytic websites, he's he's still up there. I mean, he's I think he was like uh, number one on Evan Maya's website, number three on Ken Palm. Um, he's still making like 75% of his shots at or near the rim. Um, and, and I think his defense has improved overall. So, you know, really like more than anything, a part of the problem I think come stems from the fact that, that he's not been given the space, uh, early in the season that he maybe had last year. Um, but I think that's going to be kind of solved by some of this three-point shooting improvement we've seen over this, these last few, you know several weeks. His he's at his highest usage rate he's ever had, and that's after an absurd twenty-six point nine percent usage rate last season when he was Kemp Palm's number one player in the country. He has a he has way more of an impactful role this season even than last year, considering that the entirety of the offense seems to be circled around him where the rest of the guys seem incredibly efficient in large part to the defense is collapsing on him. I mean, look at that Portland Pilots game. Gonzaga makes the most three-pointers they've ever made in the kennel. And that's in large part because Shante Leggins decided, I'm not going to let Drew Timmy shoot with one guy on him. Uh, and plenty of times Drew had two guys and a help side guy collapse on him anytime he touched the ball. So I, I don't know. I, if we think an offensive rating of 117.9 is a liability, then you have an embarrassment <laughs> of riches. If you think a guy with an effective field goal percentage of 63.3% is, you know, not hitting the sh- shots he needs to hit, then, you know, I, I, I think you need to watch more basketball potentially. Um, well, fact, he's sixth on the team in offensive rating. So he's just not good enough. <laughs> but, but do, do, Timmy, we have, do we have the depth of Auburn guys? No, no, yeah. we don't. Yeah, that's that's great. Uh, speaking of that depth, uh, Kyle, uh, I know you got some thoughts on Nolan Hickman. Yeah, I mean, Tuck, you you and I, you know, we've been fans of the Simpatico. The, uh, yeah, we've been arguing for Nolan to play more. Um, I think now that argument gets put to bed. You heard from josh exactly why nemhard needs those minutes now and that's an that's that's fair um but at, for a time there uh it was i think it wasn't unreasonable to uh suggest that nolan you know take a bit more of the the um possessions and handle the ball a little bit more but 
my biggest thing with Nolan is that he's just the type of kid that's been playing big in the big games and he understands when to do what he needs to do. You know, he can sit back and uh, run the, you know, run the bench and be the one uh, during that time, but he can also flip the switch and come up big when he needs to. Um, I would say the Bama game is kind of a example of that um, where he put up a 158-0 rating and scored nine points on three for four from three. So, like, he knows what to do, when to do it. Um, he's also going to be playing a little bit less now, I think, because Hunter's carving out a bigger role throughout the WCC play. Uh, which has resulted in, if you look at his average minutes, has gone down about three or four minutes per game in the last few. Uh, I think few starting to trust both of them. So it's going to be interesting to see. Probably you'll see more of Nolan in some matchups and more of Hunter in others. But my biggest thing about Hunter or about Nolan right now is he's shooting 60% total shooting. And he's a true freshman who <laughs> decided to come to Gonzaga on a whim and is absolutely coming uh, up clutch in big games for us. And he's my kind of big game, uh, guy. Like if we have a tough game, I think he's going to be the one that makes, uh, the biggest difference, um, when it comes down to it. Um, and having someone like that on the bench is just huge. Yeah. I, th I think it, it also speaks to, um, you know, our ability to run out some different looks, um, when we get to that all important, tournament and how matchups are, are greatly greatly affect the outcome of those games like being able to have um, another primary ball handler like Nolan to help Andrew deal with some of these different looks we're going to see that that's invaluable come March and um, you know I agree that that Nolan like what the, the skill set he brings um, and his like it's almost like this uh this toughness aspect to his game that maybe Andrew doesn't quite have on the same level. Like Nolan, Nolan's the kind of guy that's going to just hit it in your eye and walk away. Like, you know, I, I like that, that killer instinct. He's yeah. disciplined too. Like he's not fouling, even though he's playing great defense, him and Nolan or him and Hunter both uh, are really, really disciplined on defense considering how young they are. So that's also just an upside. Yeah. And like, even talking about Nolan and Hunter together, yeah, Nolan is such a clutch uh, additional point guard. I could don't think, uh, you know, Andrew Nemhard comes resurging back without a little bit of help from the rest of the guard uh, platoon. Um, and then you've got Hunter Salas, where Hunter's offense is finally taking shape. He seems to be more confident than ever, doesn't hesitate, has slowly started reworking that jump shot is it has less of a hitch and then just his motor is absurd i i've been marveling for the last two days about the play where hunter gets the ball in the corner to shoot a three misses it misses a bit uh, uh badly and goes straight into the hands of uh, the pilots and the pilots race to the other end hunter's the first guy on defense contesting at the rib and getting the defensive rebound that dude has shows so much grit that absolutely will pay dividends not only later in this season but when he has a larger role on the team and and fellas i have to say this is funny that we're going this deep on this gonzaga team talking about uh yeah, the bench when 
We don't even spend enough time talking about the season that Rashir Bolton and Julian Strother are having. Like they're they're every every corner you take on an eight man rotation, there is a guy that is just absolutely crushing his role beyond the scope of what it should be. I just don't think Gonzaga is deep enough, guys. I'm sorry. All right, guys, we got the Vibe Guys ranking coming in clutch every week. I rank the 10 strongest vibes throughout the country, and uh, we got we got a doozy this week. Uh, coming in at number 10 is Austin's guy, Rick Pitino. 800 wins on the season. Or, fuck. Our guy, Rick Pitino. Eight, eight. <laughs> I'm so fucking tired. On the season? Bro, the he's... Goat, dude. I, what a year, man. Austin's <laughs> right. Compiler. He is the goat. Uh, number 10, I have the Iona Gales, if only for our one true king, Rick Patino, 800th win of his career. Iona is just coming up clutch. They seem to be clearly tournament bound and hope they can retain Rick as the landscape of college basketball opens up. Number nine, I have the team down in Idaho, Boise State. Boise State just keeps winning guys they 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 sh- they've won 16 games in a row never done in their program before and it just seems like they're they're there's there's nothing that can stop them in their path towards the ncaa tournament number 31 in ken palm now um you know 17 and 4 on the year they have a top 10 defense in the nation 87 and a half adjusted defense um you know and and that that win over over fresno state and and wyoming san diego state and utah state all in their last their last uh four games i mean that's that's like the best four game stretch i can remember boise state ever having yeah i compare that to we talk about the wcc being a four bid conference no team after gonzaga has had that stretch at all whatsoever and they still have, uh, you know, four really good games on the schedule against uh, Wyoming, Utah State, San Diego State, and Colorado State coming up. So, and and then the Mountain West tournament. So, I think they have probably the best case to be made at this point of being an at-large bid in the Mountain West, outside of maybe Colorado State, but even Colorado State with their loss at UNLV um, the other night. You know, that 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 puts a damper on things for them. And I mean, at this point, if Boise State keeps winning, they just won't even, they'll just win the conference and it won't even matter. Like they're on track for that. And I think the game that's going to decide it is Thursday's game against Wyoming. If they win that game, I think they pretty much lock it up. Um, but yeah, it's going to be interesting. Um, shout, shout out, out. The, the Mark Few coaching tree, Leon Rice. Yeah, and Leon is absolutely crushing ballers. it. Number eight, I have the Murray State Racers. They are one of only two teams in the country with 20 wins on the season. They're 20 and two. Uh, Moorhead State, Tennessee Tech, Tennessee Tech. The last three games, they've won 79-53, 80-75, 77-66. to They just keep on racing, going past whoever they come up against. Number seven is the Yukon Huskies. There's there's a believer on this podcast that the Yukon Huskies are going to be final four bound. I don't believe it. I didn't believe it, but now kind of think maybe that's right. They absolutely dispatched a 
bum Georgetown 96-73, and then they took care of business against DePaul. We're going to learn a lot more about this team as, again, to the heart of their schedule. They play Creighton on the 1st and Villanova on the 5th, and then they play Marquette and Xavier. That's a that's a tough road. Yeah, it looks like seven of their remaining games are against ranked teams, so that'll be that's a grind. I'm just going <laughs> to say the season. I don't agree that UConn is Final Four bound, but keep we'll, on keep on we'll, keeping on. We'll we'll know we'll know for sure in in after this month. Um, number five, I have the Houston Cougars. Houston, I. I have to apologize. The first Vibe Guys ranking I ever came out with this season, I said absolutely no votes for you. I thought there was no way you could keep this thing going once your two best players get hurt. But all you've done is win, win, win no matter what. Uh, You take care of East Carolina, 79-36. That's just a a barn burner. Then you dispatch UCF, 63-49. You've won your last three games by... 19 points or more. You absolutely are crushing the vibes. Shouts to Kelvin Sampson. Their only no. two losses on the year are by two points or less also. So, yeah. Uh, whatever Kelvin Sampson is doing, uh, it's great and uh, probably no longer uh, frowned upon. Uh, number four, the UCLA Bruins. The Bruins absolutely smoked Arizona. Pretty much confirmed that they're still atop of the Pac-12. Then, unlike Arizona, takes care of Stanford, 66-43. Not even a game. Um, wait, no, that's actually not true. Arizona took care of- <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. Ah! UCLA absolutely takes care of Cal and Stanford this week. They're still going. They play on Thursday, Arizona, once more. So we can see once and for all whether or not you know, was it one bad game for Arizona or are we seeing what Arizona really is against a quality team, which UCLA is? Yeah, Ken Palm has Arizona favored in that game by five points. I just, I don't, I don't buy that Arizona is going to beat UCLA in that game. I know that Mikhail is a great home court advantage and all that. And Tommy does have a, is doing an excellent job in Tucson this year. But um, yeah, I, UCLA is just the better team overall and um you know i I buy the vibes on ucla big time i don't love the vibes because i don't like ucla but i love the fact that tiger campbell and jules bernard have been playing very very well down the stretch and i i think they're gonna win games this week and you know um it's just never good vibes out of ucla for me but that that's not that's not that's just a quibble number three I give it to the Auburn Tigers. Auburn, still number one in the country. Vibes took a little bit of a hit by uh, not really dispatching or taking care of business against Missouri like you would want. Um, but then ultimately, you you prove that you're still number one where no matter what a tough game is, you don't let it swallow you up and take over, and you absolutely trounce Oklahoma at home. And, and this is after uh, our Spokane friend, um, Jacob Grove, said that they love playing in tough environments. Well, we saw some tough environments, and our, our friend Jacob, unfortunately, was deep fried this weekend. 
Happens to the best of us, Jacob. Happy, yeah, yeah. Uh, you join great company with Austin King. Uh, number two, your Gonzaga Bulldogs. I don't know how you don't like. It's it's maybe criminal that they're not number one in the vibes ranking, considering that they scored 102 points this month on average. And as we discussed, uh, every single facet of this team is firing on all cylinders. They're playing their best brand of basketball. That is until you know we see their best basketball even further progress, which we think that is going to happen with their defense. Gonzaga, you're number two. And number one, I have the Kentucky Wildcats. Austin was talking earlier in the podcast uh, before he had to leave that the Wildcats are are the team that scares him the most. And I it's hard to argue with that considering the potential of the players that are on that roster. Shaden Sharp hasn't played a minute yet, but he's progressing. Apparently, he's finally playing five-on-five five in practice scrimmages. Do we worry about his defense a bit? Yes. Uh, but I think ultimately the scariest thing may be the team's health. I mean, I'm scared of the just the sheer amount they, they share the ball. And like some are saying Kentucky doesn't have an offensive identity, and that's a problem. But when you have five guys that take about 15 to 20 percent of the possessions like that's pretty interesting that they have that much firepower and all those guys on offense Shibway, washington wheeler brooks all playing really well right now so um if you add another person kentucky becomes a huge problem and Kentucky not only is the number one in the Vibe Guys ranking, they also, thanks a large part to their complete domination of the Kansas Jayhawks, they are the holders of the belt. What did we see in that Kansas game this weekend other than just complete ownership of Fog Allen? I don't even so, want to address my take because I thought Kansas was going to win and I just, I don't even know what, what, what happened. It was just complete meltdown. So I got to say, shout out, Tuck. I mean, you called it last last week, last week on the pod. You said Kentucky was going to go into Fog Allen and, and walk away with the belt. And none of us believed you. And, you know, here we are. So, you know, shouts out. Now, I got to say, like, what, what really spoke to me here was, was more than anything, Kentucky's defense. Um, they held Ochai Abaji to an 82-0 rating in this game. Um, you know, he was, he was pretty bad, like, you know, compared to what he's been for most of the season, mm-hmm. um, you know, guys like Jalen Wilson and David McCormick were virtually, um, unable to perform in this game as well. So, you know, it, it speaks to the ability of the bigs like Oscar Shiway and, and, you know, Jacob Toppin, who, who were able to kind of get off anything they wanted in this game. And then also the backcourt, like when they're healthy, Let's be real. Ty Ty did not have the best offensive game of his season, but he was still effective at helping severe uh, handle the load. Um, he still kind of changed things for this Kentucky team being out there. And, you know, I, I think Kellen Grady, like when he's shooting as well as he is capable of shooting, um, could be as lethal as any player in the country from outside. So, yeah, exactly. This team, this team is it's scary. Um, it's also one of those teams that it could, it could lose in the first round of the tournament or it could go all the way to the final four. 
Yeah, uh, I think it's interesting. Thank you for the credit, but I think it's interesting that I just used the logic of this podcast into why I thought Kentucky was going to win. I was telling you all the things that you told me about why Kansas couldn't be a Final Four team when I was the last defender of their honor on this cast. Uh, but yeah, uh, I feel pretty good about saying there is no way in hell uh, David McCormick could take care of Oscar Shibway. Bill Self had to hide him at the end of the bench eventually just because he was so inefficient. Fellas, this is thanks to uh, a little statistic I saw on Twitter. Kansas has played at Fog Island Fieldhouse since March 1st, 1955. In those 67 years, the Jayhawks have only lost two non-conference home games by at least 18 points. Both of those losses are to the Kentucky Wildcats in 1983 and last weekend. Kentucky, I think you're here. You've arrived. I know we're not doing Blue Bloods versus New Bloods this week, but uh, Kentucky, I mean, come on, Blue Blood of the Week, seriously. Yeah, I, I, I feel like we can pretty much confirm that uh, in a Blue Blood matchup, they're, they're the ones that, that are the bluest. I just want to mention, because um, Austin's not here to defend himself against the Remy Martin takes, but I saw a statistic after this game that said that uh, when Remy Martin plays more than 15 minutes, uh, Kansas is 13-1 and one on the season. When he plays less, uh, that's when they've lost all three of their games. Um, and so I just want to say that Remy Martin only played 14 minutes in this Kentucky game, and that might have been the difference. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, that was the difference. He that's why they lost by 18 minute. points. One he more minute. One minute of yeah. more basketball, and that would have made up that 18 points. He also only. The logic w- is flawless. He also only count, accounted for 14% of the possessions when he was on the floor. He was absolutely irrelevant. It's 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 wild to see. Keon Brooks had himself a night. It got to one point, apparently, where John Calipari tried to sub Jacob Toppin in for Keon, and Toppin just looked at him and said, what the hell are you talking about? Keep him in. Keep him going. Uh, Kentucky Wildcats, hell of a team, hell of a story. You... Uh, do we think that Kentucky is going to hold on to the belt this week? They play Vanderbilt and Bama, who just absolutely took Baylor's vulnerability to the forefront for the nation. So in regards to Vanderbilt, absolutely Kentucky's hanging on to the belt. Vanderbilt has not won at Rupp since uh, January 10th of 2006. That's 16 years. Um, yeah, there's no way the Commodores are coming into rep and, and taking the belt. Um, in regards to Alabama, I mean, let's, you know, this, this season, Alabama is the most bipolar team in the country. They seemingly only show up in big time games and there is no bigger game on the schedule for Alabama than, than Kentucky. Uh, this game is in Tuscaloosa. The Crimson Tide swept Kentucky last year. Um, I think I think Alabama is going to take the belt. Yeah, I'm with you, Josh. I think it depends on what happens earlier in the week against Auburn. If if they get, you know, it, it's like Alabama's responding entirely to bad losses. Like they take a couple of bad losses, you know, and and then they come back and they and they hit and their shots are getting put up. Um, you know, they you lose to Georgia one of the worst teams in the conference. And then you come back and you beat Baylor. You lose to Mississippi, you come back, you beat LSU. 
you lose to Davidson, you come back, you beat Tennessee. Like they just have to have. So if they lose to Auburn, they're for sure beating Kentucky. That's my take on this. Like they are just up and down, um, win for loss. So, you know, it just depends on the Auburn situation, I think. And also, um, shout out to them for shooting horrible against Baylor and still winning. Um, they shot like 30% from three, which is everyone thought that that was how they win games. So, um, you know, seems like they can still kind of uh, win games without just being absolutely white hot. Yeah, and this this stretch of the schedule for Alabama is probably one of the most brutal for any team in the nation this season. Uh, number two, Baylor and Ken Palm. Number six, Auburn. And then number three, Kentucky over the course of a three-game stretch. That's just crazy. Yeah, I'm I'm extremely interested to see what Alabama we see moving forward. Uh, it was not too long ago that people started to chatter that the Alabama loss was a bad loss for the Zags. So we'll see where the, where things move uh, heading the rest of the way down the road. Uh, and also, Alabama, if you didn't have that horrendous Georgia loss, you would have been on the Vibe Guys ranking, absolutely. But ultimately, I you, you can't have an L on the week. But my God, did Nate Oates look great in that suit against Baylor. He absolutely owned the vibes. Which brings me to close out this episode to the teams receiving no votes. And I have two selections that account for multiple teams. Absolutely receiving no votes, the Big Ten. Big Ten, you are done to me. I don't want to even consider watching you until tournament time yes purdue offensively may be back but what does that matter when your defense is what it is uh is there a single team in the big 10 that you consider a legitimate threat for april no this is big 10 slander season like i've always said i do not buy any any vibes out of the big 10 period I mean, maybe Wisconsin, if Johnny Davis absolutely decides to become, like you said, the Kemba candidate, but that's the only team I could see. Every, every All the other teams are just sad, absolutely sad. Yeah, I think I think uh, the vibes ranking this week is fraud's watch. I don't, I don't buy anything going on in the Big Ten, like I mentioned. Ohio State can't decide what they want to be. Michigan State has all the potential in the world, but they haven't turned it into anything. But I think there is even a bigger fraud than that entire conference. And that is a fraud that is, you know, well within our home and something that I feel like we have to mention considering that this is a Gonzaga-centric podcast this, uh, this Monday. There's one team that has been telling us routinely that they're in the conversation of uh, national relevancy, a team that is leaving the WCC to go find that relevancy, <laughs> a team that says they can't wait to go to the Big 12 because they're tired of playing in high school gyms, BYU. <laughs> you are <laughs> disgusting. You're disgusting, BYU. You're on a two-game slide in high school gyms. You're irrelevant oh. and horrible. And those volleyball lines really do a trick. <laughs> yeah. They all hate you. Yeah, BYU, you are uh, 0-1 in volleyball lines, gyms. <laughs> uh, you absolutely have no vibes whatsoever. I see BYU fans talking about how they need to bench Caleb Lohner as if there's anything better off of that bench. <laughs> I thought he was the swaggiest player in the nation. Swaggiest player like, in the nation. Of all time. 
I, I, uh, much, much, <laughs> much like the, the, the milk that the grown adult men in that, uh, fan base like to drink and the culture is slowly curdling over <laughs> the love affair for Mark Pope seems to be dissipating. Is that, there any chance? Is there any chance that he's not going to be run out of town and sent to Louisville? At oh, this point? Mark Pope is now on the Maryland radar, I believe. If only because Mark Pope wants to be on the Maryland radar. Vibes are down horrendous in Provo. Uh, good luck. Good night. I don't know. Do we still think they're even a tournament team? No, I don't know. They're going to lose to San know. Francisco and Gonzaga next week, so they're about to go on a four-game slide. It's going to be tough. I think I think that WCC is going to get two bids. It's going to be Gonzaga. It's going to be St. Mary's. The bald man himself is going to laugh with glee at the thought of Mark Pope not getting into the tournament. Um, you know, it's all it's reliable. It's, season. it's Gonzaga and St. Mary's. It's just it's just how it is, fellas. I think we can all end on a um, we're going to lose a team that. Never wanted to be here, and we never really wanted them to be here. So, good riddance. Good riddance. Good luck. Enjoy your Independence Bowl. Good luck getting on our non-conference schedule. By the way, <laughs> I, uh, hey, enjoy enjoy that travel out to beautiful Orlando, Florida, from Provo, Utah. Enjoy fighting your hearts out to just beat Texas Christian University and Jamie Dixon. <laughs> Um, Nothing screams regional rivalry like West Virginia versus BYU. <laughs> However, similar vibes, weirdly enough. <laughs> Just once down, a down, 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 down. <laughs> All right. I'm speaking for Austin King, Kyle Sessions, Josh Linky. We are New Bloods. Thanks for listening to us on this Monday. Have a great rest of your week. We're out. <laughs>